Welcome back to season six of David T. Beals III's favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement with the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And believe it or not, I'm Gonzalo Farias, the new Associate Conductor at the Kansas City Symphony. That's right. We have a brand new David T. Beals, the third associate conductor here in Kansas City. And that means we have a new friend to get to know here on the podcast. So friend, how are you enjoying Kansas City so far? Well, I've been here roughly a month, so I don't know every little corner of the city, but I've been known to have a couple of uh, barbecue uh, lunches here and there. <laughs> uh, we just started um, first rehearsal with the symphony, and that was really, really amazing to just be there back with so many friends and get to work for this amazing season. So I've been extremely happy and extremely actually comfortable in, with very nice people around. So I'm super, super happy to be here. Fantastic. And you're you're coming to us uh, from the Jacksonville Symphony. So uh, did you have to uh, sell all your beachwear on uh, on eBay or did you keep a few things for the memories? Uh, well, I kept all my scores. So that's good news. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> and, and also, I got them all, you know, in Kansas City, which you actually you, you think it's, it's a, not a big deal. It was a big deal because, you know, putting everything in boxes. Uh, I had huge problems like with a container, with a pod coming. I thought I was going to lose everything. I have <laughs> everything, so I'm ready to go by now. Awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. You know what I remember? Um, so, Gonzalo, your audition was sometime in the winter, right? Was it in like some of the, some of the winter months? Now November, it's, it's all been such a blur. November, yes. I think. It was cold that I remember. Well, too. so what I remember was... You know, there are several several candidates there and we were, um, you know, going through the audition process and we were kind of traveling and going to different events and and things. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, he might freeze to death if he <laughs> if he's here, if he has to spend a winter here. Because you, I remember it was exceptionally cold when you were here, but I also remember that maybe maybe you need to just invest in a warm, warm coat and then we'll be OK. Yeah, I, I need to tell you a secret. The thing is, it, that's very much true. I don't like the cold, uh, but I did live um, in Boston for over 10 years. So I'm that's kind of right. familiar with the cold. I kind of forgot about it for a couple of years, uh, but I'm, I'm ready to kind of get acquainted with coats and everything. And, you know, it, at the end, it's super cozy to have, uh, you know, a, coffee or some tea with cookies and everything when it's cold. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, good. Uh, so uh, since we're talking about the audition a little bit, um, the way we came to be with you is uh, a truly unique audition process. And I think it'd be really interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit about it, uh, especially from your perspective. And I can talk a little bit about what I see from uh, my side of the stage and Stephanie as well, um, because I think it's so interesting just how many different facets of this big organization mm. were actually involved in in vetting candidates to to arrive at you? So, so uh, talk a little bit about what your experience was. Well, I mean, as in any application and process, you send your materials and you hope for the best. 
it's a very <laughs> gruesome uh, journey because you never really know what the organization is looking for and how you fit or not, you know, the picture. Uh, I was, you know, first of all, extremely lucky to get an audition, which is, um, may, many, many people don't know this, but it's just extremely hard just to get an audition anywhere. And it, there's a lot of factors, you know, to put together luck and, uh, you know, whatever the, 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 the music director or the orchestra committee is looking for, you have to kind of fit that, but also you need to fit it like pretty authentically. It's not that you can fake, you know, how to get into a position that you're comfortable. Um, so that's, first of all, uh, it was uh, an amazing, I remember the day that I, I got the audition, I was so happy. Because um, also I had a feeling, you know, that I, I I heard so many great things about the symphony. People like welcoming, open to do different things. And, and I really wanted to have that option. So I came here and the, the, the audition process was pretty daunting with a lot of repertoire and a lot of time, which is really rare in auditions. Uh, usually you get to conduct, you know, 15 minutes at most, 20 minutes, and that's it. And here, the first round was around 20-something minutes, but the, the second round was almost an hour, which is, you know, something completely different. And I was really happy about that because then that's the only way to really get to know people, you know, to try to share who you are. Because uh, for good or for bad an audition, still it's a, kind of an artificial mm -hmm. process. And, and if you have a tiny bit more time, then you can actually share who you are, what you're thinking, and, and how you actually fit with people. So I think that was the main thing that was so different for me. I think that's one of the, um, I, I mean, obviously every orchestra has their own process. I think ours is slightly unique, as you said, just in the amount of time that the candidates get. I mean, the finalists got um, a, a huge amount of time. And I think a lot of that is a testament to Michael Stern and his, I, he genuinely wanted every one of of those auditioning to to show their best and to be able to do their best and he wanted to provide you with everything that you needed so that you could come out there and and do your best and whether that was time uh, extra time in the podium or whether it was um, knowing exactly what you would be conducting he didn't want to throw any mm. curveballs at you he wanted you know he didn't want to try to trip you up he wanted to set you up so that you could be your absolute best. Uh, can you talk a little bit, maybe as opposed to other experiences? Uh, let me think. Yeah, I think uh, I think there are two components that are interesting. One is the repertoire that we were asked to prepare and, and conduct. Uh, there were so many different things actually to mm -hmm. do. Uh, usually, they're like the, the standards, you know. If there are any conductors listening, they they just know Appalachian Spring, you know, and and going on, you know, the, the same excerpt, you know, over and over. Uh, but we got to do Mozart, Brahms, Mahler, uh, Gershwin, and so many things that, you know, you need to be so comfortable with, not with just the standard uh, excerpts for, for conducting. So I think that's just um, a testament to, to try to see a rounded person at the end. Um, and, and I appreciated that at the end. And luckily in my life, I was sort of comfortable with everything. 
and and which is you know it's a hard thing conducting because at the end comfort and being confident it just comes with time and you know it's it, at the end you, you there's no way to screw up on the podium ever so you have to need to get there by just doing a lot of uh, concerts and and finding positions and opportunities to to getting under your belt all this repertoire so I think that that was the main thing, and and, and I do remember during the um, what's it called when we had meetings and we talked, you know, with the committee. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember Michael being extremely cordial, uh, but also kind of let the committee do the work to ask the questions. So that was really rare because. In all the auditions that I've had, usually the music director, it's the one leading the questions, you know, wanting to know what he or she wants. But it, uh, here, he just took uh, a step back, and 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 I remember there were so many people in the committee, and <laughs> almost everyone got a chance to ask something. I remember, and that was, I think, the testament of the same uh, mindset. I mean, I think that's important too. I, it's it's very different, obviously, from from an audition like Mike took and one where half of your audition was talking to people. I mean, you know, you, you were on the podium and you were conducting, but then the other half was uh, you were in a room with the committee a few times, I think. Yeah. Um, we had you go to a school and see how you interacted oh, right. with the students, which was just so fun to watch. Um, you, you were so great at that. And I can't wait to, work with you on these kids concerts that we have mm-hmm. coming up this fall. Cause I, I, I've been looking forward to that ever since I saw you work with those kids when you were here in November, but that's something that's really different from a playing audition. You know, Mike didn't have to talk at all. In fact, he was not allowed to speak to the committee. I'm still not allowed. Yeah. It's in my, it's in my personnel file. <laughs> well, I, I, I just want to share um, very briefly. So, so our listeners understand the full context of what we're talking about. We heard, I can't recall how many candidates, maybe half a dozen candidates, I say heard, saw, worked with about half a dozen candidates. And we did it in the way we do of a regular audition in rounds, in two rounds of kind of a prelim and a final. And and the conductors have a preset list of excerpts like you would for a flute audition or anything else. And what they do is they come in front of the orchestra and they conduct the same however many excerpts uh, one after the other after the other. So it's a little bit like speed dating in that way. And the great thing and also the challenge for the orchestra is that we get to see this very, you know, as much as it can be an apples to apples comparison of conductors because we're playing all the same repertoire, but actually making sure that we respond appropriately and differently for each conductor in front of us while we play these pieces you know, most of which, or maybe all of which, were extremely familiar that we could kind of play blindfolded anyway. But to actually, you know, learn to have an interaction with this stranger that we didn't know um, immediately, and even though Gonzalo said it was a long amount of time, it was relative to other auditions, but it's a very short amount of time to get to know somebody in that way and mm-hmm. to and to make music with them. So I think it's a challenge for the candidates as much as it was for us, but it's a fun process. And I've been through it now a few times and it's actually a day that, that feels like it's going to be long because we play all day, kind of the mm. same repertoire over and over again. 
but it goes by fast. And I think it's, I think it's a really great process that we have here. And, uh, and I'm thrilled that you're here now and that we've ended up with you, but I, I, I do want to change, uh, change tax a little bit and talk about you, uh, as much as how you got here. So you have a not at all unique experience in that you are a very accomplished pianist who then uh, decided to become a conductor. And so I want you to tell us a little bit about um, your life as a pianist first, if you would, and then and then how it became interesting to you to conduct and how you came to focus on that, and if you if you still perform on piano some, or if you've kind of put that aside for the moment? Uh, I was just thinking exactly what you said, and I would challenge that notion. I would say that I, w- I was always a conductor that happened to play piano. Uh-huh. And at some point, I realized that I should conduct and not play piano. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, truth be told, I, I started piano when I was four or five. I played piano all my life. I, you know, I, I, I was born in Santiago in Chile. And, you know, there were not many opportunities, you know, there. And, but I finished, you know, what I could there. And I got extremely lucky to have scholarships, you know. So I came to Boston um, to, to, to do all my studying uh, in the New England Conservatory with amazing, uh, amazing teachers. And basically, I, I formed myself musically, uh, spiritually, as a person in Boston with my teachers. And I stayed there for a long time, um, even though my real dream was to do conducting. But I say playing piano because my teachers were like truly amazing. So every single week I would just be amazed of the the things that they wanted me to do and how to think about music, how to listen to music, how to make all these things work. Um, and, and I felt that at some point I was not necessarily playing piano, I was just really doing music. So I didn't feel that I was not doing conducting, even though at some point I finished, I could not do any more degrees there. <laughs> uh, I did a, you know, a doctoral degree and I was kind of done with that. And either I, w- I would need to, you know, play professionally piano or something, but it was just, uh, such a deep desire and dream to conduct that at some point I left all the fears aside and I went into it, which it was really hard because even though we're making music, we're trying, you know, to do mostly the same intellectual thing, making decisions in music. It's such a different feel. I mean, just to work on the conducting is so much more about moving your hands. It's getting to know people, you know, really knowing what are the, the, the tricks in communication, what are the physicalities of conducting, what, what actually means to be a leader, uh, ethically, morally, uh, philosophically. That is an amazing challenge that I really wanted to have in my life. And so eventually piano became more of a vehicle to do things and still is. But conducting, it's, it embeds so much more my true soul, like I 
not only I want to make music, I really I want to be a, I don't know, a great human being that can lead people to do great things uh, for the community and, and, and for the organization. So piano is still there, but I'm working really hard to make conducting that dream. Oh, that's so awesome. Well, I can't wait to just see all of the things that that you do this season and all of the ways that we can, I mean, you've even inspired me to look at the way that we, you know, we program things differently. And, um, you, and mm. we've done that in our upcoming young people series, which is going to happen in October and November. And where when you talk about, you know, working with people and learning about people, we've kind of spun this young people's concert, um, theme kind of spun it around to where, you know, we're still going to meet the instruments and we're still going to learn about the orchestra, but it's more about who the orchestra is rather than what it is or what it is we do. It's who we are, why we do these things, how we do these things, who, you know, who makes up an orchestra. And, and I, I really look forward to exploring that. Yeah. And if I can too. talk about that for just a yeah. minute, because I'm extremely passionate about finding ways to understand the music making as much as it's about sounds and making sound, making beautiful music, it's it's more relational, if I can say that. It's more about the relations that we form in sound, but also physically with people, with businesses, with organizations, with kids, with adults. It's the it's a space that it's between people really what makes, at least for me, conducting a music uh, what it is. Because at the end, I think the ultimate dream for me, it's not only make the music making process or the conducting or relational, but also making that relation be home. Mm. So whatever we do at the concerts, you know, and whatever we do in rehearsals, you know, and, and before the concert and after the concert, everything should be set up in such a way that, you know, this podcast, the, the concert, the rehearsals, you know, whenever people buy a ticket, everything is sort of put together to make a home real. Mm. Like to, to, to feel at home, to make people feel at home. Because I think they're, they're one of the amazing thing about concerts is that the concert don't start at seven or eight, and then they don't end at nine or 10. We're living kind of an ongoing concert all the time. And, and that's sort of a, a, what it really excites me, uh, at least for me, for my journey, how to do that, how to learn to do that, how to talk to you know the community, musicians, administration, so we can step-by-step step build the home that we wanna live in. In music, Mike, we're living a concert. Why couldn't you or I think of something like that? I, I mean, that's that's why he gets to stand on the podium. <laughs> I love that so and, much. And the podium is small, and uh, and we're glad to have you on top of ours now uh, for a great many of our concerts. So I think that's actually uh, a beautiful place uh, to pause for a minute and segue into this next little bit of conversation that uh, we wanted to share with our listeners and to have with you. Many of our listeners might remember uh, the name Larry Ratcliffe. 
And he was the music director of Rice University's Shepherd School of Music, which Stephanie and I both attended. And Gonzalo, I know you know him uh, as well. Larry conducted orchestras all across the world, including here and in Kansas City. He mentored countless aspiring uh, young conductors, uh, including our good friend Jason Sieber uh, as well. And we were very privileged to have Larry on as a guest uh, of this podcast uh, not too long ago. So I wanted to share here that we were all incredibly sad uh, to learn that uh, Larry passed this summer after a long battle with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And and I wanted to take a minute to mention him not only because he was on the podcast and because we've had so many people on this podcast and in this organization uh, who have connections to him and who have um, benefited so deeply uh, from a relationship with him. But, but he's a name that I think most people outside of music may not know and yet has such a such an outsized impact. Uh, it, it's, he's just an incredible human being and I'm so deeply missed by so many people. But I want to tell a brief story about him and then invite uh, Gonzalo and Stephanie to, to share something as well. You know, when I was at Rice, I was an undergraduate. And, um, you know, as an undergraduate, you're pretty intimidated by everything, especially um, especially the conductor of the the school orchestra. But Larry was a person, you know, he wasn't, he didn't get on the podium and then recede to his studio and slam the door and never be seen. And, you know, he was very, very approachable and he would be out on campus sometimes. And so I remember um, running into him a time or two at the Subway sandwich shop uh, in the (laughs) student union. (laughs) And I know this sounds kind of strange. Like, where is he going with this story? All of the, you know, stories he could tell the times he was inspired by, you know, phrasing or blah, blah, blah. But really, I think, I think in a way uh, what I'm about to share sums up the power um, and the soul that Larry had uh, and the way he transformed people. He, you know, we'd stand in this long line at lunch hour for the Subway sandwich shop and, and I was with him and we get up to order a sandwich and, you know, they're not always the fastest at Subway. And so everyone in line just wants the next person to just get on with their order so they can move to the side, pay their money, take their sandwich, go somewhere else. Larry comes up and, and he says to the person, you know, behind a counter, first of all, how are you today? You know, pleasantries, making a connection with this person who's just sitting there. Oh, I'm so glad you're going to do his, do, please, please do his voice. I mean, I say it, I, I do, I do my impression of him with, I hope everyone knows the most deep set love, affection, and joy that can be imagined. But he gets up there, he's like, how are you today? Oh, I'm <laughs> glad you're having a good day. You know, and suddenly this person who's just like a sandwich automaton leading their worst life comes alive a little bit, you know, because there's a person talking to them, not just ordering their sandwich. And, and they're, you know, and then he goes on and he's like, I think I will have today a foot long tuna sandwich. Yes, tuna with tuna. And some cheese. And, you know, and it goes on like this. And everybody in line is just rolling their eyes like, my God, already get on with your sandwich. Anyway, he, you know, he's, but the point is he's interacting with this person, you know, who's not necessarily used to being interacted with in this way. And, and I don't know if they made a better sandwich because of it, but 
but I believe whether they did or they didn't, it was their favorite sandwich that they made that day because, you know, he spoke to them as a friend, Mm. the person at the sandwich shop, you know, that he just wanted to get a sandwich from. But he took the time, in spite of all the pressure of the grumpy people behind him and everything going on in life, to share some of his love with that person making a sandwich, and it made them happier about making a sandwich. Uh, (laughs) And because he had that power to do that for someone making a sandwich, you can only imagine the power he had to have that effect on somebody who was doing something so much more deeply connected to who he was, which Mm -hmm. is making music. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's how I felt working with him. Uh, There was no way to just simply sit there and follow his directions and, and not love what I was doing more or not be more excited about what I was doing because of him and because of his just infectious and indefatigable ability to, to be a friend, to be um, loving in everything that he did. So that's my story. Well, uh, when, when I had heard that he passed, my husband also went to Rice. That's where we met and we, we both played in the orchestra there. And so he and I were talking a lot about it and we both remembered the same thing. And it also has nothing to do with playing or phrasing or, or pitch, even though there were often like arrows up or arrows down a lot, but um no, we both remembered, and I don't know if he did this annually, if he did it semi-annually, or if it was just kind of a, we were there and and he did this. But I remember before, maybe after a dress rehearsal or a- after some rehearsal at some point, he stepped out and he comes back in with just this armload of suits. Um, and he must have, I, he just had gone through his closet and he had, he had cleaned out his, you know, his suits and his tuxedos and his tails. And, um, and he was offering them to the men in the orchestra um, saying, you know, I know that these can be expensive and, and I know that, you know, not everybody has, you know, so, so whatever, if, if any of this fits you and he kind of just hung them all in front of the orchestra and, and he said, you know, this is take what you want. Um, And it was just, uh, you know, of all the things that, that I experienced with Larry, I worked with Larry at Rice, and I also worked with Larry in the San Antonio Symphony when he was music director there. That's one of the things that sticks out most. It's just, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just about the music, and it wasn't just about teaching music. It was about um, teaching empathy and teaching generosity and, and showing, um, you know, sh- sh- leading, leading by example and, and showing how... Um, how to be a good human. And I think um, that that was something that of all the stuff that that I learned from him really stuck out and it didn't even affect me. I wasn't going to wear one of those suits. <laughs> um, but I, I just thought that was really neat. Gonzalo, how do um, you know Larry? I, I should say that it is not easy for me to to do. Um, I, I, I knew Larry uh, in a workshop um, in Europe um, Somehow, I you know I, I became super comfortable. Or he became super comfortable with me, and we, you know, somehow uh, I think we were in the Czech Republic. The workshop uh, finished, and we ended up being in Vienna for a week, and we were just literally hanging out, and and from that moment, I I, I just knew that. 
if I always have you know, really wanted to do conducting, but really the reason that I'm a conductor is because of Larry Radcliffe. Mm-hmm. Just the way that he embody the conductor figure on the podium and off the podium. I felt from the first moment that I saw him, like that's the person I want to be. And, and it was crazy because I, I never really saw him conduct, but I saw him interact with waitresses and waiters in Vienna. And I was mind blown, the patience, the generosity. And I'm the, I'm the kind of person that is slightly obsessive taking notes, mental notes. And I was like constantly making notes of how he interacted with everyone with Susie and with Sammy and I just felt overwhelmed because I don't know for whatever reason I never really had that kind of a figure in my life so I appreciate it enormously and from that moment we became pretty close and I was living in Boston at that time so I went to every single rehearsal in Rhode Island for a couple of years and then I started going to rise you know just to see rehearsals and to meet him and had to have some lessons at that time, he was not taking students, but he allowed me just to come and and then we would, you know, have dinner, go to Hop Daddy, and <laughs> and you know deal with things with you know with with Sammy and homework and like so. At the end, it just became much more I don't know much more than a mentor, a friend, but also like the light that I just follow, really. And then I, I mean, I, I did start eventually conducting for real, um, but it's the kind of, I don't know how to say this, and it, this is extremely intimate for me, but truthfully, um, 99% of the times I'm backstage and I'm nervous and I'm thinking, okay, what would Larry do now? Mm. Go. It's literally that's what I th- I'm, I'm thinking wow. backstage. Um, so when he passed, it was extremely hard for me because um, he was the reason for me to allow myself to be myself. And he gave me that opportunity because also he saw something in me that maybe I just didn't see it back then. And that ability to make me special and believe in that, um, extraordinarily extraordinarily grateful and the reason i'm here the reason i'll do every you know concert this season and in my life is because of him so i i in a way yeah he passed but he lives in my heart until i die um and and let me show you one thing that I, i would just remember one quote that i have from from him that follows me everyone everywhere uh which is quite strange actually but let me share it with you sometimes you know we were talking about conducting and you know how to rehearse how to do things you know in in scores and one of the things that sometimes he kept repeating was and i would say oh no we need to trust you know the musician let's trust you know because that's sort of an ammo for a lot of people and he told me, well, you know, be careful about that. Because, you know, at the end, if you say that you're trusting someone, you have an agenda at the end. 
if you really want to trust, don't try to trust, just respect. And that really changed the way that I saw rehearsal. Because at the end, of course, you want to trust people. Because, I mean, all the musicians here and most of the orchestra are quite amazing. They have so much more experience. But when you start respecting, then you hit a different level. Because I think, at least for me, when you respect someone, when you truly respect a musician, you come from a, a place of acceptance. So you accept this person. And one of the hardest things in conducting is like we're constantly wanting to get things better. And as a musician, we, we try to fix things. But I think the, the, the one thing I learned from Larry, it's like we need to start from a different place to accept who we are right now, right then. And if we do that first, then we can do everything else. So... I love Larry, and he, he, he's in my heart, you know. Well, he is a special, special person, and uh, if if our listeners want to revisit his episode he did with us here on Beethoven Walks in a Bar, or if you want to listen to it for the first time, um, I'll link to that episode in our show notes, but it, you can also check back and check it out. It was season three, episode four of Beethoven Walks into a Bar, so... Uh, I'm going to go back and, and re-listen to it as well, I think. Um, well, Gonzalo, one of the things that we do here on this podcast we started doing is our Beethoven Walks Into a Bar Top 5. It's a top five. It's a top five. It's the 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 top five. And so as we open our upcoming season, I thought it would be fun to discuss out the top five pieces that we're going to be doing this season with the orchestra. Uh, that could be film, it could be on a main series concert, it could be on a pop series concert, it could be on family, education, anything. Anything that we're doing, um, our top five things we're most excited about. And what do you say? Should we go like five to one and each take turns or should we just list our list? What do you think? Oh, gosh. Then, then I'd have to put mine in an order. Okay, Let's so list we'll, our lists. We'll just list our list. Well, Mike, since you're, <laughs> since you seem like you're ready to go. Oh God! Uh, what are your What are your top five um, uh, pieces that you're most ex- most looking forward to doing this season? Oh wow! Uh, all right. Well, I mean, there's a whole lot in any season, so it's pretty hard to whittle it down to five things. But but here are five things that I I'm really looking forward to this season. So. Um, uh, coming up in, uh, I believe it's the month of September. Is that right? September, October. Uh, we're going to be playing another piece of uh, our good friend Adam Schoenberg. Um, it's called Losing Earth. And in addition to the fact that uh, it's a piece by our good friend Adam Schoenberg, it's a solo for percussion, which is going to be played by our also good friend Josh Jones, our principal percussionist. And I always look forward to any percussion concerto because a, comp- a percussion concerto by definition is basically a piece for circus with orchestra. Um, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. And Josh is amazing. And Adam is phenomenal. Uh, we've played so much of his music. Of course, we recorded a whole disc of his music. And this is the first time we're coming back to his music uh, for quite a while that I can remember. So that's one. Um, then 
Going more quickly through some of the rest of these, uh, Hindemith uh, is a composer we know well, but we're playing a piece of his that I don't know, and I think a lot of people don't know. Mm -hmm. It's called When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed, a reference to the Walt Whitman poem, of course, uh, a setting of that poem with chorus, and uh, it's a it's a piece I don't know at all. So I'm really looking forward to that because it's new to me. Also new to me um, is going to be this wonderful, uh, well, I say wonderful. I shouldn't really say that because it's a premiere. I don't know factually yet that it is wonderful, So, but I'm sure it will be. Um, uh, the saxophone concerto of Billy Childs. And I am just down for any saxophone concerto anytime. Two. Because they're always good and the saxophone gets kind of a bad rap in the classical world and i think it shouldn't so i'm i'm really excited for that uh then of course uh coming back to another um uh beethoven walks into a bar connection we have former guest uh and former classmate of mine caroline shaw uh will be playing a piece of hers called the observatory Mm -hmm. Uh, on the same concert as the planets. I think there might have been a theme there. I'm not sure uh, what it was. It's going to be a great show. It's going to be a great show. And um and finally I'm I'm going I'm going with what I think has to be an obvious choice, an old favorite Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. I've always loved the piece and I loved it more once I was brought uh, brought to the realization that all by myself is uh, based on the theme <laughs> from the second movement. So listen to that. Listen to uh, uh, who's the name of the guy that did all by myself. I'm thinking of Celine Dion, but it's not actually her song. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'll link we'll, to it. In look the show it up. Notes we'll put well. it in the show notes, but listen to that. Listen to rock too. It'll all make sense. Okay. Stephanie. My, me next. <laughs> Go. Awesome. Well, mine are in no particular order either, um, but uh, a couple of mine are different. So I'll say um, one that Gonzalo and I are going to be um, working on together is uh, Mason Bates' um, Philharmonia Fantastique, which is a piece um, written with um, animation accompaniment, basically. So it's an introduction to the orchestra using animation and then music from Mason Bates and um it's on our family series this year, and I'm really excited, really excited to uh, to do that this year. Uh, another thing I'm thrilled to to come back to is uh, Respighi Pines of Rome. Mike, was that on our opening weekend, like our first classical? Was it opening or did it close our first season? I don't remember now. I, I don't remember yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I remember like a decade ago being in the audience for it and it being truly the loudest but most glorious thing I have ever heard. It was so loud and so amazing and just like it gave you all the feels. So uh, I can't wait to hear that again. Um, it, Manny Axe is coming back and uh, Manny Axe playing anything is is a treat, but playing Beethoven, I, I'm just really looking forward to. He's doing Beethoven's third piano concerto. Um, I'm also very much looking forward to The Circus, which is Adam Schoenberg's percussion concerto, <laughs> uh, Losing Earth. Uh, I can't wait. Uh, Josh Jones is tremendous. And I know um, just in talking to him, you can feel the energy um, radiating from him. So I can't wait to hear and see him in this concerto. 
And then one little twist in there is a new, it's a new movie we're doing this year that I really cannot wait for. We are doing the film Elf um, uh, during the holiday season and performing all of the music along with the film. And uh, I just, I know a lot of people in the office are really excited about it. So uh, I can't wait to see it as well. Gonzalo, what about you? Uh... Uh, not in, in any particular order, uh, <laughs> for sure. But I, the, the first thing that comes to mind is Alpine Symphony for so many reasons. Not only it's one of the most epic journeys that you can ever experience in classical music. I remember vividly the performance that I attended uh, with Larry Ratcliffe mm-hmm. uh, at the end of his tenure at Rhode Island. Uh, Philharmonic. That was the final piece that he conducted. And I was there all week and I could just not believe how amazing that journey was. So to hear it once more, I'll remember that fondly for sure. And then also, I mean, let me be slightly selfish here. Yes. I'm really looking forward this week in Harry Potter because <laughs> it's uh, the first time that we get together, you know, the first week of the season. And I just am extraordinarily thrilled to be able to do it together and, and go through all the, the concerts with Harry Potter. Uh, let me think. Also, oh, I really love the Ravel Piano Concerto. And not only because Ravel is just one of the most amazing uh, technicians for composing of uh, the pianist. It's a very, very good friend of mine. We were in the same studio back in NEC. So I remember him like being like so young, uh, year, years, years ago. And to see him, you know, do all these contrarities, you know, around the world, it's wonderful. So I'm looking forward to see George Lee doing the Ravel Piano Concerto. Uh, and another concerto that I'm actually secretly really looking forward, it's the violin concerto by Missy Misoli. I think she's oh, yeah. one of one of the most interesting composers ever. And I've heard from some people that, that this new violin concerto is a gem. So that would be super fun to experience. And finally, my heart belongs to Mahler. I have to tell you. So when I saw Mahler 4, oh, I just can't wait to see that, especially because it's one of the most intimate Mahler symphonies. And I do remember it was, was one of my first symphonies uh, by Mahler that I ever uh, heard and one of the first ones that I studied. So it's such a treat to always get Mahler, but Mahler 4 is quite special to me. Awesome. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot happening this season. I love that we didn't really overlap that much. We didn't. Uh, that's really great. Um, so as much of this as we can put in the show notes and on our on our episode playlist, we'll get on there. I know there's some new pieces that um, that we won't be able to listen to just yet, but that's all the more reason to come hear them this season at the Symphony in Hellsberg Hall. Well, that is a fantastic. Uh, pile of pieces we have coming uh, this season and there's lots lots more and Gonzalo I want to say again 
Welcome, first of all, to Kansas City. Welcome to the Kansas City Thank Symphony. Uh, I can tell you that uh, there's no better family to be a member of in this town or any town. Uh, and That's we're, right. We're super glad to uh, now include you in ours. But if you want to be truly included, you have to uh, you have to pass this one. Um, this one sort of uh, initiation, this rite, if you will, uh, and it's it's actually in the fine print of your uh, writer uh, for doing this podcast. I hope you read all of the fine print. It's very fine. <laughs> it's very under fine. it's under the fine print. It's the fine fine print. We have to ask you ask you to answer two questions for us. Um, and number one is. Uh, what is something you would ask Beethoven? If you could be actually seated in a bar with Beethoven, enjoying a beverage, what would you ask him? And whilst asking him this question and listening to his ponderous answer, what might you drink? What beverage would be your beverage of choice? Either alcoholic, non-alcoholic, coffee, tea, beer, booze, water, anything. So one of the things that I just experienced that truly changed my life. Just this past weekend, I had a wonderful bottle of wine, which is uh, Chateau Pocastel from Chateau Neuf de Pape, 2007. It's one of the most glorious wines that you can ever have. I think 07, it's an extraordinarily vintage. And if you have a chance to ever come close to a bottle like that, you have to rejoice and be happy that if you get the chance to have it, it will change your life. It's so amazingly complex, open, but light. And it, it's sort of the thing that it's really hard to find. Things are extremely complex, very nuanced, layered, but at the same time, light. So usually things, you know, that are complex are heavy, but this was the complete opposite. And I was enthralled with how amazing it was. So I have to interrupt and just say that, uh, Mike, I'm not sure that Gonzalo is going to totally fit in with our like beer margarita and like Kirkland <laughs> vodka. And uh, I, I want some of this wine. <laughs> Oh, you should. I mean, this is not a snobbery thing. It's just a celebration of life. Absolutely. To get to, you know, have this sort of wine. We're going to learn so much. I, you need you need to to just show us the way. And you're, you're Chilean. It's like a birthright, right? You have to know about wine. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, you and our producer, Tim, are going to get along very well because he is currently sitting, like, in a wine cave. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I interrupted. So you're drinking this vintage, beautiful wine, and Mr. Beethoven sits down next to you. What do you ask him? I don't know if I can answer in a cheeky way, because to be honest, Beethoven, I actually, I, I call him Ludwig. He's one of my best friends. Mm -hmm. I've been, you know, not only doing the music, but... I hope people that are listening to this are not going to think that I'm a lunatic or, or a crazy <laughs> guy, but like, I talk to him all the time, you know, when I'm like dealing with scores, when I'm, 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 you know, walking 
to get some coffee, I'm constantly talking to him and like feeling like this part of, you know, myself because um, I feel his heart and his soul extremely close to me. So in a way, yeah, to ask him, I don't know. I just, it's, it's like, you know, you don't ask weird questions to a friend. You just know the friend. So if I find Beethoven in a, in a bar, I'll just like, oh, hi, dude, how are you? Like, and just let's chill. Like, let's get this shot enough the Pablo 7. Let's open it and let's just <laughs> celebrate. Uh, that's it. Because, I mean, you know, I can ask him like a thousand questions about music, about the metronomes, about, you know, his hearing. Ah, when you're among friends, let's just drink. Let's just have fun. Oh, that's you are going to fit in really great around here. Yeah, all I think that's all the right it. answer. That might be the first, that, mu- that might be the answer. The first not, right answer? Not an answer, <laughs> the answer. <laughs> Don't talk about music, just drink. Well, you are definitely, you definitely going to fit in around here. And, and um, I can't wait to, to work with you directly. We've already had some work, you know, uh, out of the hall. And, um, but I can't wait to get in there and, you mentioned we're in rehearsals right now for Harry Potter 6, um, which uh, is going to be in um, Hellsberg Hall this weekend. So that's September 7th, 8th, 9th, and 11th uh, in Hellsberg Hall uh, with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. That's going to be followed by our classical series opening next week. And that's with violinist Gil Shaham and Copeland's Third Symphony, led by our music director, Michael Stern. And our pop season opens the following week with Broadway's Leading Men, conducted by Jack Everly, and we are going to be joined by the Heartland Men's Chorus. So it's an awesome season. It's so great to be back for another podcast season, and I can't wait to get it all started. Well, coming up on this season of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, we're going to learn about the newest members of the Kansas City Symphony and continue our chats with visiting conductors, play some fun games, and continue asking rhetorical questions about Beethoven. This season on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Eric Carmen, I just thought of it all by myself. <laughs> I was like, Eric Carmen, wh- whose name are you Tim, throwing you out that there? Out. That's great. 